There's a common saying that almost everyone's heard. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And yet, human endeavor is littered with cases where we tried just that and eh, things didn't work out. Consider just one example, the Iowa caucuses. For years, it was all about pencils, paper, and a telephone, and then someone got the idea to fix it. Look what happened. In Washington, they're talking about fixing, air quotes here, Medicaid. That is also one of our state's most effective policies of recent years. Healthy Michigan, that is, also known as the Medicaid expansion. Today, we'll be looking at why we might want to reconsider this particular fix. This is Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. I'm Nancy Derringer, Communications Director for the Research Council, and in this podcast, we look at Michigan through a policy lens. Our discussions here are informed by our 104 years of experience doing nonpartisan, fact-based research on policy issues. We hope this podcast will serve as another way for the public to access our work, which is, as always, free and available to all at our website, crcmich.org. My guest today is Tim Mischling, our health policy expert here at the Council. He's the author of several major papers on how we do healthcare in Michigan, and most recently wrote a blog on this very topic. Tim, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to have come, and I hope you're equally happy that I met a came. (laughs) Medicaid, Medicaid. (laughs) Okay, then, briefly... Uh, The change under consideration here is moving Medicaid from its traditional funding model to a block grant system. Explain the difference for any listeners we have who aren't as knowledgeable as you are. Sure. So the Trump administration's federal health officials unveiled new Medicaid guidance that invites states to apply for an opportunity to restructure their Medicaid programs. Uh, In short, this would change federal Medicaid funding that's provided to states by creating either an aggregate or per capita cap, uh, which sounds like a lot of jargon. Um, It's worth noting that in the 56-page guidance on this new healthy adult opportunity, and that's some quotes there, uh, there's the term block grant is never used because block grant has become sort of a a dirty word in a lot of circumstances. And I think we'll get into why that is a bit. Um, So aggregate and you you mentioned two terms here, aggregate or per capita, right? Yep. Okay. And those would be, if I'm understanding, if I'm figuring this out from context, aggregate would be, uh, there'd be one amount of money granted to a state based roughly on how many people are enrolled in the program now. And that would be the amount of money they had to work with. Yeah, so it's either an aggregate amount of money given to a state for the Medicaid program or a per capita amount would be based on how many people are in the program in a given year, probably. It depends on where you set the measurements and how you figure that out. Okay. Um, But really, this is the idea is ostensibly the same. So in extremely technical wonkish parlance, this proposal waddles, swims, and quacks just like a block grant. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Now, um, block grants are one of those ideas that maybe sounds good on paper. Um, Let's free the states from unnecessary federal oversight and let them run things the best way for Michigan. I mean, we've seen this a lot, not just in... uh, um, from the federal level, but even from the state level. You could argue that that uh, revenue sharing is a form of block grant. Um, ex- 
So there are some hazards, though, that are associated with this change. Do you think you could explain those? Um, I can certainly try. Okay. (laughs) The idea of block grants sort of goes back to uh, the Nixon administration and what was called new federalism. And this means the devolution of responsibility for various policies and programs from the federal government uh, down to state and local governments. Um, Entitlement programs, though, like Medicaid, for instance, weren't the original target of block grants, uh, although there were pushes to shift Medicaid to a block grant uh, as far back as at least 1981 with the Reagan administration. Okay. There are two basic purposes to a block grant. Uh, First, it was an attempt to make large federal programs more responsive to divergent local needs. So it's this idea that people in communities know best what they need. And so if you give them the money, they'll do what's most important with it. In the case of community development block grants, of course, we saw that turning into building swimming pools and wealthy neighborhoods sometimes rather than, uh, you know, the parks that they were supposed to build, or it could have, you know, just filling holes in, in, in local budgets. So there were some right. problems with that idea. Once the money's in hand, it's kind of like if somebody if somebody gives you an amount of money to pay off a specific debt. Sometimes once it's in your hand and it's liquid, it, it has a way of trickling out of your hand. Yeah. So there's, there's a problem with no strings attached, but that kind of takes us to the second point of block grants is that they were seen uh, by some as a good way uh, to shrink the federal government and reduce the size of the federal budget. So by cutting back the spending, the way you incentivize people to, to take less money is to say you can do whatever you want with it. So federal programs have traditionally had a lot of rules and guidelines in place to make sure that with scarce public resources, when we're using public dollars for something, uh, we want to make sure the money does what it's supposed to do. Okay. And so when you block grant, you don't necessarily have to do all of the rules or meet all of the guidelines. And so this kind of block granting was pretty hazardous from the beginning uh, just for that reason, because a lot of the money didn't go to what it was intended to go for. And then states and cities found that they didn't have enough money to even do what they had been doing before the block grant started, let alone have the block grant keep up over time and enable them to pay for services. Okay. Okay. So, um, Getting back to Healthy Michigan, um, you contend and have contended many times in your your various uh, reports and blogs that Healthy Michigan has been good not just for the lower-income residents who qualify for Medicaid, but also for the rest of us who have private insurance or policies through the Affordable Care Act. Why is that? Yeah, so Healthy Michigan is important here because this new opportunity uh, specifies that it, it is focused on adult Medicaid enrollees between 18 to 64. So it excludes children. It excludes uh, the elderly, uh, as well as individuals who have qualified for Medicaid on the basis of disability. So the population we're talking about is the healthy Michigan population from the 2014 expansion, though it could be that some adults with children or uh, pregnant mothers could also fall under the block granting system because it's anyone whose eligibility isn't mandated by federal law. In terms of what Healthy Michigan has 
done for the state, uh, our research here at the Citizens Research Council, as well as a lot of other academic sources, have all found pretty much the same thing, uh, that the Medicaid expansion has been really successful uh, on a variety of factors. So looking at healthcare cost and access and quality, we find that people have been able to access more care and that Medicaid and particularly the expansion has given access to this care at a relatively lower cost when you compare it to some of the private health insurance options. Okay. So this is, I mean, a lot of this comes down to this belief that, I don't even think it's a belief, I think it's simply a fact, that if people are able to access health care at a time when they are just kind of a little bit sick or if they, you know, they think something might be wrong or whatever. If they go to a primary care doctor when, before it becomes a crisis, they can be treated often for a lot less money than if they put it off and put it off because they don't have any insurance at all until they end up having to be taken to the ER in an ambulance, correct? Right. Yeah, that's a big part of it. And there's evidence that there's more, uh, what we would call improved care-seeking behavior, which is that prevention. So people are working with their primary care physicians uh, rather than going to the emergency room. They're doing catching things early, doing things that are better for them. Uh, Michigan's Medicaid expansion also has a structure to help people elect healthy behaviors, such as giving up cigarettes or exercising a little more, uh, reducing stress, all, all sorts of things that make them healthier. Uh, and we see evidence that people are doing that. And so that's improving health over time. Okay. Um, yeah. You see your doctor and he says, uh, I don't like the, you know, you, your, your blood work is a little suggests you may have prediabetes. Let's work on this before it becomes something really serious. And That's the majority the of people, uh, according to the evidence, uh, are doing that. Right. Okay. Um, we also see broad economic benefits to the state, uh, just in terms of having federal dollars coming in for Medicaid that we didn't have before. Um, that's allowing people to take care of their health and have more money left over to spend at the local stores. That's hiring new nurse practitioners or other health care providers. It's also eliminating bad debt and uncompensated care in hospitals. So there's a broad range of economic benefits in that way. And what we've also seen is that it's improving our workforce uh, and that people who were enrolled in the Healthy Michigan Plan, even more than the low-income population or the total population of the state altogether, um, had a greater percentage of people who were either finding new jobs and applying for jobs or going back to school and getting new training. Okay. And it's also, I think, I seem to recall um, in one of your reports that this is being credited with keeping open um, some hospitals and healthcare facilities in some rural and re or more remote, remote parts of the state as well, correct? Yep. Yeah, there, there was some uh, research done on a variety of different states that found that right after Medicaid expansion went into effect that states like Michigan and including Michigan that expanded Medicaid uh, had more support for rural health centers. So typically, rural hospitals uh, have fewer 
patients because obviously the population is more spread and they operate on really razor thin budgets. And so uncompensated care is really hard to absorb in those settings. And if people can come in uh, and they have access to Medicaid, it pays a lower rate, but that money really helps, uh, yeah. helps those providers. And at the same time, that, that lower rate uh, that's it's paid for than Medicaid. Nothing, right. It's better than nothing. Um, you can also argue that it may be closer to the actual cost of providing care. And oh. so <laughs> it constrains uh, the enormous growth in healthcare spending that we've seen. Right. Okay. That sounds, that sounds fair. So why fix it? Um, what is behind this push to move to block grants? I think the answer to why always depends on whom you ask. Um, always. And it's, it's, it's worth noting that we already have a fix going into play, uh, which is that last month uh, the Healthy Michigan Plan had work requirements uh, begin. Right. Which is another modification to Medicaid that's fairly novel, uh, and that's due to a federal change similar to this one. Okay. Uh, so we haven't had time to fully assess that, but people who would like to read our blogs about it uh, have access to those on the website. Sure. This idea of block granting isn't new. It's not a new fix, as, as I said before. But what is new is that previously this was included in attempts by Congress to first repeal the Affordable Care Act and then repeal parts of the Affordable Care Act and then repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act and all other things having to do with the Affordable Care Act. There was this block granting of Medicaid that's been a longstanding priority for some groups in Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, and as we know, that legislation didn't work out in the end. Right. And so allowing states to do it through a waiver from CMS, uh, is a way to open... The Center for Medicaid... And Medicare Services. Medicare Services. Yeah, I, I apologize. It's That's one okay. of those acronyms. <laughs> so CMS is the part of the government that runs Medicaid right. and Medicare. And you figure probably, if people are still listening to this podcast, they probably already know that, but let's just make it clear. No, so, I, okay. I appreciate that. Okay, so back to CMS. Yeah, so CMS offered this guidance to states to enable them to try try out the block grant for part of the population. So if you want to know why, um, if you look to the guidance offered by CMS, uh, they express that Medicaid is a large portion of state budgets, which is true, um, and point out that as baby boomers retire, there's going to be more need for care for the elderly and long-term care for which Medicaid is the sole provider, which is also true. Um, and so... This is being presented as a way to prioritize finite Medicaid dollars so that they go to the most important place. Although, as mentioned previously, Medicaid is currently an entitlement program. And so while dollars are certainly finite in one respect, um, whatever happens to state Medicaid populations, the federal government is on the hook for covering however many people need care at whatever level or cost of care. Right, exactly. And, you know, we um, before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, what happens in the next recession and people are out of work and they may lose their work-provided health insurance and have to go on Medicaid. And suddenly you could find yourself with a significantly larger population that needs to be served 
but with significantly fewer dollars to do it. So what gives at that point? Precisely. And so if you're someone like me who's actually gone through and looked at enrollment numbers and cost numbers year by year, it's lots of fun. I I recommend you try it. (laughs) Um, You would see that when we had the last recession in Michigan, even before the Great Recession, when we had Michigan's single state recession that we call it, Medicaid enrollment went up and up uh, because, as you said, there were more low-income adults in terms of people who lost their job and needed temporary support. And when the recession ended, those people went off Medicaid and went about their business um, as they've found jobs, assuming they're the ones that have found jobs that still provide health benefits, of right, course. Right, yeah, that was, that's another story. So, okay. So I think there are a couple different reasons for this policy beyond what's being stated. If I were an optimist, um, I try to be, I often fail. Uh, <laughs> an optimist would say that this will make some of the states that have yet to expand their Medicaid programs for a variety of different reasons more open to the idea. And we've seen that Medicaid expansion has been really successful in a variety of different states. And so in states that still have a lot of uninsured adults and have not expanded Medicaid, this may be an alternative way for them to accept some federal money and open up some amount of benefits to people who are currently uninsured. And I think that would be a good thing. A little, a little carrot here. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's, on the other hand, for states that have already expanded Medicaid, um, like Michigan, like Michigan, uh, I, I think many of them will refuse this opportunity. Um, I think healthy adult opportunity becomes a little Orwellian when you realize that the opportunity is ultimately, as we've discussed, either less money, fewer people covered, fewer services covered, higher co-pays. Um, there's, it's, it's hard to characterize what the opportunity is exactly right. in, the, in this guidance. Um, I guess my Orwellian response to it is that the proposal is double plus ungood, <laughs> but um, some states may be tempted to take the carrot of not having to follow traditional rules for Medicaid and being able to do whatever they want with their program within the guidelines, uh, up to and including higher co-payments, covering fewer drugs, covering fewer services, uh, and restricting eligibility in a variety of other ways. I I think there's an ongoing decades-old rhetorical debate about the nature of public benefits. And so some folks think that there's a moral obligation to care for those in need. Other folks think that certain types of care benefits are right right, versus some people think they're a privilege. And we have these disagreements in in American society. Um, Those folks who are fixated on determining who who isn't worthy of aid... um, typically will tell the story that you give aid to the unworthy and you'll make these poor souls permanently dependent on handouts and robbed of any hope for self-sufficiency or motivation to better themselves. Uh, And I think that's where you get to the problem because this is a really deeply ingrained assumption in a society that really values the individual. And there are a lot of good things about placing value on the individual. The problem with is when it leads you to this assumption that there's not a lot of evidence to support that. Right. Okay. And so 
what we see is that Medicaid, in terms of work, for instance, as we start work requirements, is not a disincentive for people to go to work. If anything, it's a mechanism to overcome health-related barriers, whether that's an unmanaged chronic condition or a substance use disorder. Or, or new glasses. I mean, new glasses. I mean, just something as simple as, as this. I, I, I think a lot of people, um, they just aren't aware of how difficult it can be to get through um, your life when you are missing a fairly easily correctable or when you have a fairly easily correctable health situation. And when you're suddenly feeling better, when you can see better, you you probably are going to go back to work because, you know, Medicaid is a pretty good health plan, but is it is it so good that it would actually keep you out of the workforce so that you can keep enjoying it? I don't know. I don't well, and there's so. it, and if if you're talking about this this threshold, so Healthy Michigan covers adults up to um, one and a third of the federal poverty, poverty level, rate, yeah. so 133 percent. When you use an adjusted gross income methodology, which means nothing to people who don't do finance, it ends up in practical terms being about 138 percent of the federal poverty level. Okay, um, you know there is a risk that people crossing that threshold the jobs that they find where they make more money, they may still not have health benefits. And so I think it seems reasonable to consider whether the incentive, you know, if if there's a disincentive of people making more money but losing their health benefits is to figure out a way to provide those folks with affordable, comprehensive health benefits as well, whether that's the employers providing it or some other type of program. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's, and if you talk to people who have used Medicaid, Healthy Michigan in the past, uh, one of the things they complain about, and I think you call this phenomenon churning, or is it, yeah, the, the, where, where if your income is higher than the threshold of need in any given month, you can be kicked off of Medicaid. And right. so if you're the kind of person who makes your living, uh, where you're not salaried and get regular hours, but you know you make a little bit, you make so much in one month and so much in another month and so much in another month, and you find yourself just bouncing back and forth on and off, you know, out of qualification. That's that can be pretty stressful. Yeah, and the the churn is a real problem. There are different potential solutions to fixing it, such as looking at year long eligibility versus month to month eligibility, yeah, income averaging, something like that. Yeah, there there are lots of different ways you could approach that problem, and so that's an that's an example where if you have someone churning on and off a program, it messes up their continuity of care. It messes up where they're going to see the doctor, whether they're going to see the doctor. That's something that's broken. Let's right. talk about fixing it. Um, yeah. But where things aren't, I think you only open the possibility for problems to emerge. Certainly, there are theoretical situations where some kind of block grant could work perfectly and you get just the right amount of care or benefits or assistance or what have you to just the right people who need it and it's deployed efficiently and effectively. It costs less. You get more for it. That's a beautiful story. Um, in all my study of policy, I can't think of a time when that's happened. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I think that's a good note to end on then. Thank you, Tim. It's always great to have you here and have your insight. And... Always great to be had. Okay. <laughs> and that will do it for this edition of Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. 
Remember, the Council operates as a public resource, and all of our papers, along with blogs, op-eds, and other resources, are available for download on our website, crcmich.org. We operate as a nonprofit, thanks to Michigan's corporations, foundations, and generous individuals like you. If you'd like to make a donation, go to our website, crcmich.org, and click the Get Involved tab on the homepage. We also welcome feedback, which you can send via email to crcmich at crcmich.org. I'm Nancy Derringer, and until next time, I leave you with this observation by our founding president, Lent Upson. The right to criticize government is also an obligation to know what you're talking about. 